Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have a very special guest. He's a University of California, Berkeley School of Law graduate and currently works as a principal at Optimized Legal Solutions, LLC, and as a writer and creator of the Empirical Scoutist blog. He's held past positions as an attorney at Kendall, Brill, and Killiger, and as a fellow at Columbia Law School. Honored to have him on the show today, Mr. Adam Feldman. Welcome to the podcast. How are we doing today? Doing pretty well, just getting over a cold, so a little bit nasal, but otherwise uh, things are good and I'm, I'm excited to be here. Very good. I'm excited you're here as well. Now, Adam, before we get started, can you introduce yourself to the audience, please? Sure. So uh, my name is Adam Feldman. Um, like you said, Nate, I'm a lawyer um, as well as a, uh, I have a PhD in political science. And uh, and so I, I write about the Supreme Court. I study the Supreme Court. Um, I publish articles about it. And I also teach a few classes in uh, uh, at college level political science uh, that uh, are at Cal State uh, University Northridge and uh, focuses on uh, upper division law, um, including Supreme Court and constitutional law. Yeah, so I I found it very interesting doing some research before uh, coming onto this podcast today. Um, you definitely have a lot going on in your life, which I love. I always I always love the busy life. I, I said yeah. last episode, uh, you know, I hope to be busy like that one day. Um, you might uh, re- you regret saying that down the line. So uh, <laughs> glad we're holding on to this audio. <laughs> listen, only time will tell. I'll, I'll come back and listen to this and be like, hey, maybe Adam was right that one day. All right. um, but starting off with with your sort of journey to the law, um, I think this is a very interesting episode because you interact with the law in sort of a non traditional sense. Um, you know, I don't imagine you're in you're in the courtroom or anything, uh, but you know you're you're still teaching in school. You have your blog, and you are part of Optimized Legal Solutions, which I don't know what that is exactly, but we will get into it soon. Now, starting off, graduated from UCLA. You ended up going to Cal Berkeley. Uh, can you talk about your decision to actually go to law school, why you did it, and so on and so forth? Yeah, um, absolutely. So uh, I think I was interested in law since uh, the end of high school, um, really from uh, taking AP government. It seemed like something interesting to me. And uh, I don't have any any lawyers in the uh, in the family so uh, I was kind of going at this, you know, somewhat blind in terms of uh, not having really any mentors to look up to at that point in time um, that were in law. Um, but it's, it's, it seemed interesting to me um, as, a, as an idea uh, going into college. Uh, I took a few uh, law-related classes at UCLA. There, uh, there weren't uh, any kind of traditional upper division law classes at UCLA. So it was jurisprudence and it was legal theory uh, much more than uh, like looking at cases. Um, and, uh, and I saw, you know, greater interest in that, uh, I had friends that were a few years ahead of me in law school, um, and it seemed really neat from an academic perspective and, uh, and, and studies that I wanted to get into. So, um, it was, it was mostly from observation, uh, and, uh, seeing that, that this was really an interesting topic and stuff that I wanted to study and learn about. 
Um, and, uh, and so I, uh, towards the end of college, uh, decided that I was going to, uh, put myself out there, throw my hat into the ring and, uh, and give it a go. And, uh, I, you know, got into one of the schools that I was hoping to get into, um, you know, the university of California system is great. Um, having in-state tuition is nice. And when you have a little bit of a scholarship on top of that, it's even nicer. Um, so, uh, so I was able to, to get into law school and a, a good school and uh, not have to totally uh, break into the uh, the loan bank. Um, so, uh, so yeah, a lot of different things collided and uh, kind of set, uh, set me on my way. I think what's most important there and what's really special about this episode is that you're, you're coming from an academic perspective. Uh, you know, usually past guests, it's, it's a lot of, you know, I'm interested in getting into the work of the field sort of like that but i i think what makes this episode what really interests me and what i found interesting about you and wanting to bring you on is because you you know we we haven't gotten that academic perspective on this podcast before now talking about the first year i always say it's traumatic because everyone tells me it's traumatic was it traumatic for you first semester was really bad um and it also goes back to this uh this not having really any mentors that were in this field. Um, because I think if I, if I did, and that had kind of prepped me for what to expect, it would have been a lot easier. Um, yeah, law school is, is different than college and different from any experience that I've had in academics before that, where you're thrown a ton of information, uh, you're not really tracked on how you're, you're learning during the semester. And then you have a final at the end. And, uh, and I didn't realize, uh, I think that, there is also there's always been this kind of mechanism behind this madness where there's an expectation for how you write for law and how you think in in a legal sphere. Um, I'm a bit of a chameleon where I can find what I like and uh, kind of change my colors uh, in a way that that fits the situation. So uh, so first semester was uh, a bit overwhelming and I didn't do anywhere near as as well as I thought I was going to. I was hoping I was going to. Um, but, you know, being kind of this, uh, this, this, uh, having this ability to figure things out as I go along, um, has always been, uh, kind of a, uh, a good trait for me. Um, I, I use that, uh, to fuel my second semester and the rest of law school where, you know, I used it to learn how to do better, how to think in a, a more analytic fashion, um, and, uh, and was able to be successful, uh, in law school, um, after that, um, now, Second year is where you get your, um, you, you kind of hopefully get an internship to uh, that turns into a job afterwards. So I think, you know, after that um, interview process and where I kind of had a sense of where I was going, that's where the stress level uh, dipped pretty dramatically. But, uh, but yeah, it's all kind of an overwhelming experience. You kind of get the uh, fire hose shot right at you um, until, uh, until you kind of get your, your feet wet and, and then you develop a comfort level. And that's, you know, the way it worked out for me. Well, it's very comforting to hear from me that, you know, so even even like you, a very successful person, you have a lot going on that you even, you know, struggled a little bit your first year. Uh, but you're you're seemingly a very adaptable person. And that's, a, like you said, a very important trait to have. I always work to make sure I have that sort of trait that, you know, wherever I am, I could put my best foot forward, but kind right. of make sure I, I know what I'm doing. Learn very quickly. Uh, that seems to be a theme with law school. Uh, yeah with the past episodes, you know, it, it comes at you quick and you got to move even quicker. Yeah. Uh, so, 
Speaking of that summer uh, legal internship that you got, you worked at CBS. I'm very interested. How, how was that? So year one was at CBS. Um, I, you know, I'm from LA. Uh, I've done some work in the the industry um, during uh, towards the end of college. I did a little bit of work at HBO. Um, you know, just kind of assistant work and uh, was you know at, at some point uh, I had these grandiose ideas of becoming a entertainment attorney um, and uh, doing transactional work actually in entertainment. Um, but I also learned that there was a long arduous process to get there. Um, and frankly, you know, through law school, I, I learned that there are a lot of other things to do um, and interesting paths, and sometimes they combine uh, in interesting ways. So, so you know, I, through some of my contacts uh, in the entertainment field, uh, I was able to secure a uh, internship year one, uh, summer one in, in law school um, to work at CBS uh, in their in-house uh, division. Um, fascinating stuff um, from, from my perspective, because they handle a lot of the things that go on behind the scenes that people don't always know about, um, but that, you know, affect, uh, affect their brand. Um, so it was really anything from copyright issues where uh, there was one case where uh, a company was producing uh, uh, slot machines in Vegas using some of the uh, properties from CBS. And so um, we were suing uh, against that use. Um, everything from that up until uh, people that were uh, re reaching agreements in reality television saying that they were going to uh, to give away uh, some of what happens before it was aired if they don't get um, some piece of the pie. And uh, and so we had to uh, to work with some of their agreements and what they signed beforehand to uh, to make sure they, they didn't uh, do that. And that was a bit of a you know extortion on, on their behalf. Um, so it, it really uh, kind of ran the ran the gamut. Um, and, and uh, you know, not only was it interesting in that respect, but it helped set in motion some other things uh, down the road that uh, I, I got to uh, work on later in my, uh, you know, after law school years. Yeah, that, that's some real deal inside baseball right there. From, yeah. from from my perspective, I find that absolutely fascinating. I think the, yeah. the extortion, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, I mean, I it, mean it, just, it, it just gets crazier from there. Um, so there, there are uh, other crazy stories that that went on or that you know were going on behind the scenes um yeah it's it's pretty uh pretty unique i think even in the in in the legal sphere you know as a young as a young law student you know how how was that sort of that sort of when you first sort of you know saw saw the curtain raise a little bit yeah. and you know how was were, were you surprised by it or was it more of like a, i kind of knew this was going on yeah um so I uh, I knew that you know it, employment lawyers deal with some of these issues, um, just kind of craziness that goes on within uh, within corporations, um, and uh, I, I wasn't aware that that was kind of what an in-house department deals with. Also, um, so there there were really really you know kind of bizarre stories that that went on, you know stuff that you know predated me significantly. Um, made sense, you know you're kind of blending the entertainment world with corporate America that you'd have some of these things, but I wasn't anticipating that, I think, uh, going in. So it was, it was a bit of a surprise. So something you had said before that you were, you became interested in entertainment law, you wanted to do transactions. And obviously, as time went on, you kind of refocused all, all these different paths. And I think something for me that I focused on a lot last year, which I found out I shouldn't, um, is sort of finding that field of law that I'd like to go into or like to pursue, start getting some early information on it. Um, how did you sort of find your passion uh, and what sort of line of work you wanted to work in? 
Um, well, I, I see myself as always a work in progress, um, and I'm uh, generally open to new experiences and, like we talked about before, adapting to new situations. Um, so I, I constantly am learning and also figuring out what works best for me. Um, so, you know, when I was looking at entertainment and doing it uh, from that direction, I, I don't think I had uh, anticipated in my head um, how much that one needs to do to get there to actually become the type of attorney that I was interested in doing and becoming. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of that was um, getting more of a generalist experience in law. And uh, I, I quickly found that uh, becoming a generalist uh, trend lawyer uh, especially in a big firm environment, means sometimes being in the office for 48 hours straight um, and working on it. If a deal's closing, I mean, you you have to be there. If you, you know, if, if you need to bring hard copy papers to Kuala Lumpur, somebody gets sent to Kuala Lumpur uh, for, you know, a day or two. Um, so it's, uh, it, it, it's overwhelming, I think. Um, and, uh, and wasn't, you know, I, I'm, I'm a hard worker, but I'm also believe in like the, the necessity of having break times. And so a few of these like 24 hour plus sessions, um, showed me that, you know, maybe the generalist transactional law is not, you know, right for me, but I was still interested in entertainment. Um, but I, I refocused to more of a, a litigation standpoint. And also, you know, during my second summer, which I, I summered at, uh, McDermott, Will and Emery. Uh, I, I was exposed to some uh, some appellate law, uh, and uh, you know, I found that really interesting because it has uh, um, you know it's it's I think more of the the analytic the writing side, um, and uh, and and involves more research you know in terms of like thinking outside the box. Um, so you know I kind of had you know some taste of what that's like um, and saw okay there's you know probably something interesting within these different confines of things that I'm figuring out that I enjoy and that are kind of drawing me in um, so you know it's constantly refocusing retooling um, and you know I did that within law and I'm still doing that when I'm kind of outside of legal practice looking in um, so that's that's but that's you know my my way of, of working and I know that I'm uh, you know unique and and it's not for everybody. That's extremely well said. I, I I try to carry that myself, the sort of chameleon lifestyle, trying a lot of new things, uh, especially with the appellate work. Uh, one of the previous guests I had on, Brian Ginsburg, he's an appellate attorney, and he had spoke about through the appellate system, kind of figuring out how you become this mini expert on many topics. I know he worked with, uh, there was like this river and there was like a dam or something in New York state. And he basically yeah. had to learn everything about the biology behind it, like how the river appears, the way it moves, this, like how the dirt gets in at the time, all this, all this stuff. And and I found yeah. that fascinating uh, yeah. in, in terms of not only the sort of information you can learn, but just the, so many different pathways in the law. I this one time I I, I met this woman. She was a uh, she was a veterinarian lawyer. I didn't I didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, so yeah. you know it was. I keep having these very eye opening experiences, but it it all comes together. It, it you know sort of shapes me in a way, and it just like right. it shaped your career. Uh, you know, each time you learn something, you sort of adapt your your worldview and and the yeah. way that you see the law. Which I yeah. just am very interesting. Now, after law school, you became an attorney at Kendall, Brill, and Killiger. Did I say that right? It's it's Kendall, Brill, and Klieger. Uh, it's now called Kendall, Brill, and Kelly. One of the, the name partners moved out. 
Um, so I actually did uh, some brief work at, at McDermott afterwards um, in uh, in general litigation, um, but pretty pretty soon, you know, within a, about a year of of starting there, um, this opportunity actually came up, which was through one of my contacts at CBS. So I said that you know uh, sometimes those things come back. Now CBS wasn't looking for anybody to start in house, you know, as a as a super junior attorney. Generally, you know, in house jobs want at least five years of experience because they don't want to train you. Um, so I learned that when I was doing my first summer that that probably wouldn't be available to me for some time. But they knew people that were looking, you know, in a boutique shop for somebody who wanted to do entertainment litigation. And that was Kendall Brilliant Klieger at that point. So I moved from McDermott over there. Um, Kendall Brill was an offshoot of Viral Manila, which has a very strong entertainment practice. And the, you know, the 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 guy who was the chair of the entertainment practice at Irel um, was uh, was Richard Kendall, um, and he started this this boutique firm. Um, so it seemed like a very interesting uh, way to to get into the things that were really interesting to me um, and move away from the the big firm world, which you know I was already yeah, I could kind of see that 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 type of practice wasn't exactly what was interesting to me. Yeah, I, I, I hope, you know, myself in the future, I don't, I, I don't look at, look at a couch and it's like, wow, it looks like I'm sleeping here tonight. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I only asked if I got the, the name right as well. Cause I, I was on a little hot streak there. I got like four straight episodes of getting all the names right. I snapped it. It's all right. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. I, I always try to get it right, but like that, yeah. that was a tough one, honestly. But I have to ask, you went back to school to get your PhD. What yep. went into that, specifically focusing on public law and political right. theory, which I'm, you know, it's fresh in the memory right now, because last year I took I took a class in public law uh, yep. with Matthew Kirk, which I've, this is the third episode I've said his name, my favorite teacher ever. Um, okay. Part of phenomenal public, I'm actually, I'm so interested in it. I was, I've yep. been waiting to talk about this with you. Yep. But, so what was the decision to go back to school? Why'd you do it? So I, I had actually with with Kendall Brill and you know with McDermott, I'd seen some of these appellate cases, and uh, I, I started thinking about how you can um, understand the likelihood of, of winning one of these cases. And I um, started doing some kind of math in my head. Now I wasn't you know a math expert or statistics expert by any stretch, um, but I saw that there was some value there in terms of predicting an outcome and uh, thinking about you know how you can tailor litigation based on what you think is going to happen at the end. And some of that is based on the judge, and some of that's based on the strength of your case, there was nobody really looking at the data side of this, you know, thinking about it in terms of probabilities and then thinking about how you can change behavior because of that. Um, that seemed really interesting to me, probably also because I was really into sports analytics in the early 2000s um, and, you know, Moneyball and, and all that kind of stuff um, was going on in baseball. Analytics and sports were really hot topics, still are to some extent. Um, but, you know, it seemed like you could kind of parlay that into uh, into how you think about legal practice also. Um, so I had all these, you know, kind of big thoughts about how I could do things different and, you know, possibly, hopefully uh, better and more efficiently, um, uh, you know, down the road, but that there was very little buy-in and a very uh, high barrier to entry into that. Um, but um, I'd, I'd done some reading on the side uh, in quantitative studies of public law, um, kind of basic statistics and looking and thinking about outcomes and, and predicting likelihoods. Um, and one of the teachers and, and, and authors that, you know, I was uh, most interested in uh, happened to be this this woman, uh, Lee Epstein, who was at Northwestern Law School and uh, and was just moving to USC Law School 
Um, and so I, you know, these, she was one of my inspirations in this. Um, I was, you know, thinking about, okay, how can I, uh, you know, do something related to this? Uh, she was coming to USC. So I, I sent her a cold email, um, not cold in the sense that, uh, you know, I was, I was a uh, risk, but, uh, but she didn't know me from anybody. Um, and asked, you know, look, I'm, I'm thinking of going back and getting a PhD. Um, I'd be really interested in working with you. Are you looking to work with grad students when you come back there? Because I know you're going to be part of the law school faculty. Um, That's kind of your main gig there. And she said, yeah, for sure. You know, um, as soon as, you know, you decide if that's right for you, let me know. And then I can get you on some projects if you do decide to come. Um, I made a calculation uh, at that point, which was probably one of the uh, you know, ones that had most profound effects on my life moving forward, um, both because it changed the trajectory a little bit, but also um, because it changed my finances dramatically um, to uh, to go back and uh, and work on a uh, popper's uh, stipend uh, as a PhD student, um, doing a little bit of, of side you know, hustling uh, in law on the side, um, but uh, but primarily focusing on on studies and specifically thinking about how. I could uh, I could study law, but also political science, and also from a quantitative perspective. Um, and SC not only you know was that the place that Lee was uh, was going to be working at, but also was extremely flexible. As soon as I started talking to them about how um, if I came to do a PhD there, I could structure it in a way that really was interesting to me and my studies, and not necessarily down one of these uh, these these paths that had already been created. Um, so they were very uh, flexible with me and let me work with people in law school and political science and, you know, psychology, really any departments that I, I wanted to pursue um, learning from uh, and and having people on my dissertation committee from uh, they were, you know, the USC was willing to uh, allow me to to do that kind of work. And uh, and so, right, it was a, it was a confluence of a bunch of these factors seemed to make sense at this point in time. Um, and, you know, from where I'm standing now, I think it was a really good decision. Uh, but when I was doing it, I constantly doubted myself because uh, it was such a, a, a big transition at that point. Um, but, you know, we uh, uh, kind of change our perspectives as we get on uh, down the road. Yeah, so a lot there. First, I'd like to say um, my roommate uh, in college, very big into baseball analytics, always okay. complaining about the new advanced stats. Um, yeah. You know, you know, there's a lot of players who are probably not that good, who are high up in the advanced stats. People give them a lot more value. So right. shout out to Max. I know he loves yeah. it. Uh, but something you said before, which I thought was very interesting, uh, talking about the analytics, talking about judicial behavior, uh, you saw a sort of value in that. Can you sort of describe what value means to me because i I love that word personally. Yeah. I think it's a very important thing in this world, especially. Yeah as an individual in any professional field that, you yep. know, when you get into a company, when you work anywhere, like, you know, I worked at ShopRite, but, you know, every day I showed up, I looked to give the best value, you know, put those, put the apples away in the right places sort of thing. Right. Uh, can you sort of describe what value means to you and how it has sort of influenced your career? Yeah. Um, you know, law is at the end of the day, um, a, a kind of corporate practice. Um, there's big organizations, um, they want to make money. So when we talk about value, I mean, I'm, I'm really thinking about the bottom line um, and how do you get there? Um, it's by thinking um, creatively and efficiently. 
Uh, and law is uh, not always a uh, efficient industry. Uh, I think we saw that in 2008 when, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the bubble burst um, and a lot of people that were the year after me in law school didn't have jobs because um, the, the legal market had just uh, fallen, uh, you know, into the tank. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it, be, it became readily apparent to me that, uh, you know, maybe the thinking behind the business part of law um, was not, um, you know, was not up to date. And, uh, and so, yeah, when I think about value, I think about how we can do things uh, that cost less, and that can make more. Um, so how do you, you, you um, make things cost less? Well, you do things uh, through uh, some kind of automated system uh, that is normally being done by a person. Um, and there really weren't even people that were doing these cost benefit analyses of you know, what it takes to get through a case, um, how you could do it differently and how you could think about things differently in a way that you know, maybe you don't have to do all of this work and all this research if there's a particular area of focus that's going to make a bigger difference in a given case. Um, so it's, you know, not just looking at everything from 10,000 feet, but looking specifically at the elements uh, that, that need focus and focusing on those, putting less emphasis on things that don't. And by doing this, you know, doing this in a data-driven way. So looking at past decisions, looking at the case, how it stacks up, looking at, okay, what is going to be most effective knowing that this is the material before us and this is the judge and this is what the judge has done. Um, you know, trying to take as many factors together and pretty much put it on uh, one piece of paper uh, or one spreadsheet uh, as, as it you know, has become now um, and be able to make some decisions that are really based on um, economics uh, to, uh, to make things uh, more efficient uh, practice and also um, to anticipate outcomes uh, with much stronger likelihood. So, you know, it's, it's much easier to tell a client, I think you have a 75% chance of winning based on data that you can actually show them rather than this hunch that I, you know, won three or four cases uh, that were, you know, related to this area. Um, so, so right, it's, it's a lot of different moving parts, but I think it's a new way of thinking about law that um, people are just becoming accustomed with. Um, and I'm hoping to, uh, to kind of be on that cusp that, you know, I think is transitions law uh, into becoming uh, more of a 21st century field uh, like a lot of other professions. This is this is really interesting for me because right now I'm getting all I'm I'm getting the whole public law semester is coming all the thoughts are coming to my head about judicial behavior, uh, yeah. and and the models. Uh, I know there's the Atuno model before the yeah. law, rat choice, all that yeah. stuff. Um, uh -huh. I have to ask, did you feel like this sort of because uh, it seems like there was there was an opening in in the legal market for this sort of uh st statistics driven law do, do you feel like yeah. you got into this like very early you seem like you're very much on the forefront of it yeah um i think in terms of where i stand in this i i, I was um because i don't have a, a math background right i think that there were people that were looking at, at analytics from a quantitative perspective um that were looking uh at past decisions primarily where my interest was really forward looking. Um, so there were people that were looking at, you know, in political science, looking at 40 years of data in the past, but weren't looking to, okay, how does that affect legal practice right now? Um, so in terms of, you know, in terms of looking forward facing, I think I, I was, uh, you know, one of the early innovators in that. Um, and that's why I think, you know, my, my blog, Empirical SCOTUS, has created such a, a niche within Supreme Court studies is because it's really one of the first forward looking 
pieces uh, of, of, you know, of information or sites of information that's out there um, in, in the law. Um, nobody was, nobody else was doing this. And it's a simple concept. It's just, you know, how can we look predictively and, you know, look at past trends to how we can make predictions. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that there were people that were backwards looking that were there already. There were people in different industries that were thinking along these lines, but there weren't very many people putting these things together. And that's not to say that analytics were totally outside of the law. I think in terms of people um, building up like discovery uh, systems that can uh, use, you know, AI and machine learning. I mean, that's that's been around for a while now, um, but it, it's, um, you know, ways to kind of act, get information in a different way, not ways of, of thinking and of, of legal practice necessarily. I, I'm I'm happy to be on the pot, you know, have someone on the podcast who's a pioneer, seemingly, yeah. of, of the statistics-driven legal movement. It seems, from my perspective, I forgot to say before, I actually know who Lee Epstein is, which is okay. absolutely crazy. He was yes, that's, uh, that's they're part of the syllabus for public law, so I, I sure, I, yeah, I, no, that makes sense. I read their piece. Um, I forget what it was, but I that name, I I knew that name before, but uh, I think what's interesting is is it seems like this sort of statistics driven movement was sort of a was it a creation of academia because i feel like it started there and, and now you've sort of took it into the mainstream of of the legal field yeah i think that that's a really good point um yeah it started i mean started in political science i mean it's been you know this idea of looking at ideology and you know the things outside of doctrine that drive justices and judges votes you know, that had been discussed really since the mid part of the 20th century, um, you know, that these things affect decisions and that we can look at, at decisions in like larger numbers and see trends, right? They're not only like doctrine based trends. The judges aren't coming in with a clean slate, tabula rasa, um, in each decision and just, you know, kind of with this palette coming up with a decision, they have things going on in the back of their heads and previous decisions that affected them more or less. Um, and they have their unique calculi. Um, so, uh, so I think that that had been incorporated in political science for a while, um, but there aren't very many people working within the legal sphere that are, are using these tools from public law within political science um, to drive decision making. Um, so that's that's the, really the juncture of where I feel like I'm a little bit different than uh, the average political scientist looking at law. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, the Scoutist blog. You're, yeah. You are the creator of it. Um, can you sort of describe what that is, what you do there, what you look yeah. to uh, sort of implore to the public? Yeah. So, um, yeah, first, I think I should make the distinction. The SCOTUS blog is its own animal. Um, and that's that's been kind of a beast in the Supreme Court space for uh, years now before I got started working in this. Um, that was uh, started by Tom Goldstein, um, who is a Supreme Court practitioner. He's recently retired. Um, and uh, and it mainly put out news about the Supreme Court, but also put out an annual stat pack. Um, I knew about SCOTUS blog when I kind of got into this. I uh, In 2015, I created Empirical SCOTUS, um, which you know wasn't looking to piggyback on SCOTUS blog at all, but was I, you know, where I was thinking, okay, um, you know, there's this, this big vacuum in terms of space where um, the Supreme Court and data meet. Uh, and uh, and I've been doing all this work looking at political science and law now for a few years in a PhD program. Um, how can I apply it to decisions that are being made in current terms, um, you know, and justices that are sitting on the current court? So uh, so that was my idea behind empirical SCOTUS. I, you know, I have all of this methodology and all of this kind of uh, exposed to all this information 
And, uh, and, you know, I think it could be, you know, used in a different fashion. Um, so I started this and actually, um, here's where it gets kind of interesting and the names start meeting. Um, in 2017, 2018, uh, I started running the statistics for SCOTUS blog, um, the, the bigger animal that predated me. Um, so I started putting together their stat packs uh, at the end of the terms. Um, my, my blog uh, became affiliated with, with the bigger blog, uh, SCOTUS blog, and started publishing my content on there. Um, as, as things a few years down the line changed over there, I went back to doing things mostly on my own and away from SCOTUS blog. We still have a good relationship. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we kind of run uh, on parallel tracks, but they do much more doctrinal reporting now where I'm doing the data side and they actually stopped running their data pack um, last term. So uh, with a, a colleague of mine, um, Jake Truscott, we put out, you know, the only real stat uh, pack that that was comprehensive of last term um, was through empirical SCOTUS. And so um, I believe this year, again, we're going to kind of be filling the space with an end of term um, synopsis of the statistics and will be the only place that's going to have that. I will be sure to read that myself. I'm very interested now knowing knowing a lot more about it, speaking to you right now. But I have to ask, this is I guess this is more of a question for me. Um yeah. what what sort of what sort of variables, what sort of factors are your models based upon? What sort of data do you put into it to see what the potential outcomes are? Yeah. So uh, Lee Epstein, um, one of the projects she had me starting on, probably the second project I worked with her on, was uh, the Supreme Court database. Supreme Court database is this compendium of decisions. Um, you know, now it's built through you know uh, the back to the beginning of the Supreme Court in the 1790s. Um, when I started, it was on. It went back to 1946, and part of what I was started on was the initiative to push it all the way back. Um, Supreme Court database has like 40. Uh, variables for each Supreme Court decision it tells you um, who the petitioner is, who the respondent is, what um, type of uh, what type of player are they? Are they government? Are they a private actor? Um, you know who the justice that authored the majority opinion is. Um, what the lower court was. These are all different factors that we can put into an equation and see. Okay, are these things meaningful? And are they meaningful for particular justices? Um, so I started out by using the Supreme Court database to understand, uh, you know, okay, these are past trends. What do these tell us about the future? And this is all already pre-coded. So there's, you know, there's this massive information out there that political scientists are using, but the legal world is mostly not exposed to. Um, so I, I started out using that, and uh, that was like my primary vehicle for information and data on the Supreme Court. Um, but I also uh, started building out my own data, and that's you know, some of which I've done on my own, some of which I've done with uh, collaborators. And uh, so now, you know, we have information about the texts of the decision, how long they are, how short they are, who's writing within specific issue areas. Some of that's covered by a Supreme Court database, but we've kind of revised how we think about issues before the Supreme Court um, and in uh, different directions within the doctrine within each case. You know, can we code, okay, this person might be uh, pro-speech, but anti, uh, you know, pro-free pro speech generally, but anti-speech uh, attacking the government. Uh, those nuances weren't covered in the Supreme Court database, um, but you know, using uh, NLP, natural language processing, we've been able to pull out information from the text and have even more data. Um, so you know, it's a combination of the Supreme Court database plus things that I've been developing on my own to develop a more complex, comprehensive set to understand the Supreme Court and also distill it down to lower courts. And that data um, pretty much isn't, you know, hasn't been curated by anybody else. 
Um, there, there really isn't a great source of court of appeals information and district court information. Um, so, you know, kind of building that out from scratch. I know in the political science world, from you know what I've been experiencing in school now, I know the 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 bit. I don't know if like a it's a big argument, but you know people always talk about models. Do they work? Do they not work? Um, you know what what sort of trial and error has went into you creating all these big data sets and and figuring out you know. Can this really work? Yeah. I mean, so I think when I got into this at the beginning, I had one of those aha moments where, um, you know, I, I knew about ideology. I knew about, you know, all of these different factors that could affect decision making, but I hadn't really focused on the, you know, how good, uh, how strong predictors they are. Um, and, you know, the fact that, okay, you can predict, you know, even without all of that, you can predict the likelihood of over 60% of how um, the justices are going to vote just by knowing who the petitioner is. Uh, the justices vote to reverse over 60% of the time. So, you know, if you're going to Vegas and, uh, you know, you could bet on black or red, you know, you you bet on the petitioner each time, you're going to, you know, end up making a profit at the end of the day. So, right, you know, anything that can give us a better odds than flipping a coin is helpful. So, okay, you know, I'm starting to think along these these new lines. Um, you know, this can help us understand things. Um, but, uh, but, you know, just, you know, be, being a little bit more flexible um, than, than just saying, that it's it's like these clear things that are are driving uh, decision making. Some of these are clear, but some of these you have to kind of back out. You know, maybe a justice isn't even that cognizant, and maybe a trend hasn't been pulled out um, about you know things that that drive them. Maybe there's a attorney that's arguing cases that they're really enamored with, and they might be voting for more often. So the more information that we have um, put together, and you know, and this just you know involves thinking creatively. Okay, these are the things we've already accounted for. This might be affecting the decision. Let's spend an hour, two hours, trying to dig up a little bit of data, pilot it, and see if there's anything there. Um, so there's a, a lot of those, and sometimes those stick you down big rabbit holes, especially you know when you're a, a doctoral student looking to publish papers. Um, you know, sometimes that'll be days and weeks and months of, of rabbit holes. Um, and you know, I did I did quite a bit of that. Um, you know, I just put out I think my fifteenth uh, and sixteenth uh, publication. Uh, just got the hard copies back for the sixteenth. Um, and uh, you know, I mean that's. Uh, nothing in terms of uh, comparing it to a career political scientist or legal scholar, but uh, um, you know, for somebody who did most of that as a PhD student, it was uh, a lot of a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of you know interesting things and finding some things that seemed really interesting were just a big waste of time. Sure. Um, so it's uh, you know it's, it's going down the rabbit holes, it's trying different things out, and uh, you know if that really sparks your curiosity like it did me, um, you know it's 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 worthwhile to, for those moments where you're find that you've discovered something that hasn't been talked about. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. I think going back, I, I wish the casino worked like that as well. I wish we knew coming in. Was, but, yeah. you know, that they take your money. That's what it's all yeah. for. Uh, but I think what's even more interesting is the sort of rabbit holes that you, you've went down. I've went, I've went in my short 20 years, I've went down a couple of rabbit holes myself. Um, but, you know, a lot, when you watch YouTube for long enough, you, you're bound to find something absolutely crazy that, that you sort of drop then. And, and I, I, I find it comforting for myself that, you know, there are things out there that, you know, you can find and, and pique your curiosity and sort of, you know, pursue like you did. Uh, I think that's amazing. And, I, and I'm happy to hear and also congratulations on the 15th and 16th publication. That's big stuff right there. Uh, some, some stuff out there. Yeah, appreciate and, it. And I... I, I I just think um, I lost my train of thought. But besides that, I'll remember it later. Uh, kind of connecting the 
to the optimized legal solutions, the the yeah. position that you work in currently, uh, is this using the probabilities with smaller firms? Um, so uh, yeah, right. So optimized legal is one of these hats that I wear right now. Um, it's it's my own private consulting, which I'm actually um, hopefully building out and, and taking on some uh, some uh, additional employees uh, soon because it's it's building to a place where it's uh, you know I need some more uh, person power. Um, so what it is, is developing unique data sets for particular problems. Um, Supreme Court data sets are already out there. And that's like the, you know, pretty much the only uh, used data set that is uh, accepted across a, a field within law, um, within public law. So uh, right, there's lots of economic data sets uh, that, you know, deal with anything from criminal law to actual economics. Um, and uh, but right, there's only, you know, there, there's only one Supreme Court database um, and that doesn't help practitioners you know, uh, argue cases before any court aside from the Supreme Court. Um, and that's where most of the law happens. So optimized legal is really a vehicle for me to create unique data sets for different uh, problems that lawyers face, different problems that companies face that are hiring lawyers, uh, interest groups, politicians, uh, uh, hedge funds. Uh, you know, I've kind of worked with all these different groups who have some stake in, uh, in legal claims. Um, but want to have some kind of data-driven approach to, to help them along. And, you know, I think both by creating kind of a name and a brand for myself, um, by doing this work for, you know, now, um, you know, really over 10 years, um, uh, you know, I, I have some credibility that, you know, it's, and it comes word of mouth, right? People know that you're doing this, that you're unique, with, unique within a field, um, you know, this is helpful, um, so the more people that I worked with, the more opportunities there are there. And it's really about creating unique data for particular situations, um, which is time consuming, um, but which adds a lot of value, um, right? Something that that lawyers aren't usually thinking about. But when people have to make decisions that have economic repercussions, then being able to provide some kind of uh, you know, assessment of, of the finances um, and likelihood of success has a lot of value. Um, so, so that's, that's what I do. You know, it's mainly uh, federal appeals and district court matters. Um, you know, it's been some Supreme court matters, uh, but typically Supreme court attorneys um, think that they know best. And so it's hard to convince them that there's uh, something that, that a uh, data analyst can tell them that they don't already know. But um, for lower court practitioners, there's much more, uh, much more room there. And so, you know, by showing them, okay, this is what I've done in the past. These are the people I've worked with. That goes a long way. Yeah, I mean, Adam, I'll be honest. You got me hooked. I'm, yeah, I'm doing my thing now. This is fascinating. I've never heard of of this sort of data drive. I mean, I, I took public law, so I know a little bit yeah. about judicial behavior, you know, the predictive power of things. But, yeah. you know, I think bringing this to the lower level is a fascinating idea. I'm, uh, I'm bought in. I can't, yeah. I can't give you any money, but I'm bought in. But in, in a few months, come back to me because we're uh, we're actually <laughs> developing. I I with uh, some some uh, collaborators are developing some software to start automating some of this, so we don't have to develop something new each time. Um, so I can't say much about this now, but I can say that within a few months, I will have something out there that's uh, you know also unique and that is uh, something that can be used without a lot of human intervention. Um, so, so you know, it's constantly trying to, uh, to come up with something different and newer, uh, and more exciting. Um, so that's, that's part of the toolkit. Yeah. It certainly sounds like you've struck on a gold mine here, but no. you, you've, you've led into my next question that, that I was going to ask, which I'm interested in, obviously, you know, it's, the, it's, it's 2024 craziness. Um, you know, yeah. next year's 2025. 
I know right. for my Call of Duty players, you know, Nuketown's coming. But um, I have to ask, what, what, how do you, have you been incorporating AI? What, what does, how does AI shape what you're doing now going into the future? Yeah, um, it's a good question. And it's something I'm still working out in my head. So as soon as, as I, you know, knew about ChatGBT and that something like this was coming on market, I started looking uh, for people that um, were familiar with the interface and large language models, knowing that it's very similar to some of the machine learning that I've been working in, um, but that uh, it requires a set of tools that uh, I don't have on my own um, and that I know other people did and that might be interested in, in working together. Um, so somebody without a background in law that'd be interested in getting involved in legal pro projects, but has a background in computers, and that's, you know, the person that I found that I'm working with now. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I, I could, I could see early on with AI and the way things were changing, that there's incredible value there for the stuff that I'm doing. Um, so I'm trying to, to leverage that. Now, the, um, the, some downsides to chat GPT style AI is that generally it's built off of what's available on the internet. Um, and uh, so it doesn't know necessarily what is better information, what's, what's worse information. Um, so the first thing that I realized is that, you know, we're going to have to be able to add in our own data for it to be able to make um, decisions and choices on. So, um, you know, in terms of pulling the data together, it's not uniquely helpful. But once the data is together, the way of managing it, thinking about it, and uh, and also updating it is very different. Um, so it's, it's a great tool. I think there will be a lot of value in it. But, uh, you know, just saying, you know, AI is there is not going to be enough. It's, you know, how we can figure out how to leverage that with new sources of data and, um, you know, figuring out how that's going to save us time, energy, and, and, and money down the line. Um, that's, that's still a question that I'm working with. But like I said, I'm developing some software. It's based around uh, some of this new AI that's, that's out there. We're, we're developing large language models, um, developing uh, with both AI and machine learning. And, uh, and you know, look, this is you know, cutting edge technology and, uh, and it's very, very much aligned with the work that I do. Um, so it will uh, inevitably play a role in, in what I do. But uh, we're just at the, the early phases of you know, seeing where this takes us. Uh, so I don't want um, to bind myself too early to a particular approach learn more about it and see how I can leverage it for the things that I'm looking to do. Yeah, with AI, I remember I, I'd actually, I found ChatGBT, I think it was my freshman year of college. So two years ago, uh, I remember I was, I'd sat there for like four hours. I was just talking to it forever. And yeah. I, I was like, this is, this is, I've never, I never really came across anything like it. And yeah. I found it extremely fascinating. And, you know, as time went on, I've, I've kept up with a lot of stuff going in AI. I found it, I, I find it very, very interesting sort of topic. Um, you know, I, I'm a philosophy major. So, you know, there, there's a lot of ethical issues around it. There's, there's so oh, yeah. many things surrounding it. And like you said, it's very cutting edge technology, even, right. you know, in, in the sort of Silicon Valley tech sector, you know, everyone's playing a game of one-upsmanship. Uh, who, who can who can make the better AI? Uh, yeah. I think for yourself, it's it's going to be a very interesting next couple of years. Uh, you know, I, I know uh, Google just came out with they've had Bard for a while, but they they keep updating it. And obviously, ChatGPT I just went from three and uh, there was like three point five to four yeah, now. Four. Uh, so there's there's so much going on. There's a ton of movement, and you know, yeah. especially in in I'm I'm very interested in. Um, but it comes with a, a, a word of caution, though. Um, you know, Chief Justice Roberts puts out the end of the year report each uh, December 31st and has some kind of topic that he focuses on. This year was on AI. 
Um, and uh, he uh, he talks about the anecdote that had you know kind of gone around legal circles as last year, uh, a firm that relied on ChatGPT to uh, to write a brief, and the uh, system created uh, cases that didn't really exist. Um, so you know, I think at the outset, people are overly reliant on the technology, not knowing what it can and can't do. Um, and that was a word of caution. Um, so, you know, I think it's great. I think it's potentially potential to be very helpful, but we can't just assume it's making the correct decisions for us. And it's still at this point in the technology, very important for human intervention to actually make sure that the things it spits out are accurate. Um, so it's not going to be, you know, take over jobs, uh, you know, in, in uh, large masses right at the outset. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we have to figure out the best ways to use it and what it's capable of and what it's um, not capable. Yeah, I saw something very interesting on LinkedIn. I, it might have been your post. I, 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 someone was speaking about AI in, in the legal field, and and they were talking about how it's 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 a tool at the end of the day. At the end of the day, just like we have an iPhone, we can use Safari. We can, you know, look up whatever we need. Uh, you know, it it should be used in a sort of tool way. Uh, I know I recently just got a syllabus for a class the next uh, this next semester, and I was reading through it, and the teacher had left in a little anecdote about ChatGPT and sort of AI tools, and and she sort of said that you know you can use it. Obviously, don't let it write all your papers, but you know use it as a tool, use it as a sort of way to get a better understanding of the material or, you know, sort of get topic ideas, sort of like that. I think it's very useful to, for that. And I've used it myself for those kind of abilities. Um, but I think go, obviously going forward, it, it's going to be a very interesting topic. Uh, obviously, uh, the made up court cases, I'd seen that. I read about it. it that was crazy. Um, yeah. But I think going forward, there's there's so much around it. And it's just going to keep growing. It's just going to keep getting stronger and smarter and more intelligent, and more cutting edge. And I'm very excited to see what comes with it in the future. Um, but to change gears a little bit, going back to something you said a little bit ago, uh, you talked about getting a position, uh, getting you know optimized legal solutions off the ground, sort of word of mouth, that sort of networking. Uh, can you describe the importance of networking for and how it's had an impact on your career. Yeah. Um, so I, I've kind of uh, clumped networking and brand building into the same uh, kind of sphere where um, I could see very early on um, that, uh, it, well, well, first off, you know, when I started the blog, it wasn't like it, it grabbed great attention right at the outset. Um, but I, I knew some people working um, within uh, law and technology um, and some people, uh, you know, I, I knew of them. So, so yeah, you know, when I started writing this stuff, I started sending out pieces and trying to get in touch with people, uh, kind of similar to how you got in touch with me, looking them up on, uh, you know, for me at that point, it was mostly Twitter. Um, but people uh, like David Latt, who was at Above the Law, um, you know, that, that you know, had uh, a decent following at that point, um, getting in touch with him and saying, hey, have you seen this? You're writing about, um, you know, the, the ages at which Supreme Court justices retire. Um, you know, this is the actual statistic of that. And, you know, somebody like David said, oh, wow, this is great. Let me you know, showcase a little bit about what this guy's doing. Um, and so I started out, you know, that way, trying to get in touch with people who could help, um, you know, put my my work into uh, more of a spotlight um, and develop that uh, and uh, and moved, you know, from there to trying to become this expert within uh, the, the area of uh, Supreme Court and data analysis. Um, and, uh, and as I 
continued to build that brand and people knew more about me, um, then I found out different ways to, uh, to, to showcase what I do. So, you know, that was when I started looking at doing some projects with different people that were in the legal sphere that could actually use this stuff and, you know, saying, okay, you know, I'll, I'll put in my time and, you know, for very little um, money on the back end, if, uh, you know, you can help publicize this a little bit. And so did that for a few projects um, and, uh, and realized that there were other people interested in this. Um, I've been putting in a lot more time on LinkedIn than other social media platforms lately. And that has, you know, provided, uh, you know, great kind of rewards also in getting to know people within the legal business world that I hadn't known in the past that have become clients of mine. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I find that putting in the time sometimes leads to nothing, but oftentimes, you know, if you put something unique and interesting out there and you show the right people and you get to know them, that there are other ways to interface with your work. And, you know, that helps build a reputation. Um, so sometimes doing stuff, uh, you know, pro bono, as it were, um, can yield, uh, you know, big rewards down, down the road. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very happy that you brought up something such uh, of building a brand. I think that's something today that a lot of people don't talk about. I think it's an extremely important sort of part of anyone's life, especially the professional life. It's almost integral to it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in the entrepreneur land. I, I listen to a lot of startup podcasts um, and, you know, they always, always, always talk about building a brand. And I think it it's it, it really isn't something that people talk about. And I'm very happy you brought that up. Uh, sort of very much switching gears here, but going back to sort of optimized legal solutions com and comparing it to the sort of uh, Supreme Court justice data set that they have, do you feel like the larger data sets are have a little less predictive power than the smaller ones? Or do you, is it the other way around? Good question. Um, I don't think there's necessarily a clear answer to that. Um, you build a, a large data set and you have a lot of factors in it, then you can make pretty big generalizations. I mean, that's that's the, you know, I mean, look, if you're looking to uh, to make a uh, prediction for a company in a specific like lawsuit, you don't need all of that data. But if I have a company that's asking me, okay, which attorney should I pick based on their uh, success? You know, then I need a large data set. So um, some of it depends on on what the question is um, and uh, and how broad of a question it is. Um, you know, so because sometimes you can just distill down a bigger data set to something smaller and then add a few other variables and that's all you need. So it's tailoring to specific situations. Um, but, you know, it's it's best not to have to reinvent the wheel every time you need to do something. So if you can use something that's already been created, then that saves you a lot of time and energy. Um, but yeah, you know, the, you know, depending on the individual question, oftentimes there's data digging that needs to go on uh, beyond that. It's very, it's fascinating to me. I, I had to ask that question because that was sort of the thought that was flowing around my head. Uh, yeah. Last two questions here. So you're always working. You got legal optimized solutions. You got the empirical scoutist blog. You're always writing on LinkedIn. But Adam, what does a typical Friday night or Sunday morning look for you? Oh, so that's a good question. Um, Friday nights are usually, uh, you know, mostly off the computer. I, I would say I'm never entirely off, um, but that's, you know, I'd much rather be doing that because uh, I'm doing it for myself and my work rather than doing it for some somebody who's looking over my shoulder telling me you need to do this. Um, so, I, you know, that's another thing I've discovered on the, you know, on this road that, you know, I, I like having that flexibility and that's important to me, which didn't, you know, wasn't apparent uh, earlier on in my life. 
Um, so I, you know, I never totally shut off, shut off. Um, but Friday nights, often family night. Um, yeah, we, I live in LA. Um, my, my family's in LA and we oftentimes do a Friday night dinner together. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's Friday night. I mean, weekends, uh, are, are, you know, you never know. It might be doing some work. It might be doing, you know, taking kids to a birthday party. Um, you know, so many possibilities for what goes on on a weekend. I don't think there is anything typical. Um, you know, I'd like to say I, I watch football on the weekends, but it, you know, really depends on the games. And, uh, I, you know, I'm also a generalist. I used to play a lot of fantasy football. Um, so that, that used to dominate more of my, my Sundays, but now, um, I'm trying to, you know, get out a little bit more, um, oftentimes at the beach. Um, so, you know, one of the benefits of uh, living on the West coast is that, you know, even when it's, uh, not, you know, summer weather, it's generally sunny outside. Um, so you can at least go there and sit if you're not, even if you aren't going to the water. Um, so making use of the, uh, the beautiful landscape that is Los Angeles. Um, yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm still out here. Um, and, uh, so I want to make sure that I get the most use out of that, that I can. Yeah, I, I I still have yet to get to California in my life. Uh, I I, I would I, that. I know it's so unfortunate. I'm here in New York though, and yeah. you know, it's it's like 32 degrees outside. I got to wear a jacket. So I've heard. Yeah. Uh, it's it's I can't. I you know one one of my big goals is just to be in a place where it's always sunny because I love I love being outside. I love the sun, yeah. and I love it being warm. So I'm I'm very happy to hear that. If I ever go out to California. A beach will always be waiting for me with the sun shining. Uh, yeah. And now uh, post-COVID uh, and post-COVID, so many things have gone on Zoom that I used to have to travel. A lot of a lot of people I work with are on the East Coast. I oftentimes work on the East Coast time, um, D.C. and New York uh, primarily. Uh, but, you know, now almost everything's on Zoom. I, I don't, you know, I can stay in my, uh, you know, generally nice warm house or, uh, you know, uh, outside of the beach. Um, and, you know, look at people in the you know, freezing winter uh, on the East Coast and, uh, you know, feel sorry for them, but not that sorry. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, please don't feel sorry for me. I'm I'm no, no. I'm still I'm still I'm yes. still working. And I'm still getting yes. through the, the harsh winter, especially when I go back up to school in Albany. It, yeah. It's even it's even more snow, more rain. It's just upstate. Yeah, it's it's brutal. But. At the end of the day, I I love it though. I still do love it, even even if the weather is unforgiving. I still love the city of Albany. Uh, so at the end of every episode, I always have the words of wisdom. So Adam, what are your words of wisdom for the aspiring lawyers, the current law students, or even the legal professionals out there? Oh, I think you know. Find what's interesting to you. Um, don't uh, don't just decide that it's the right thing um, because it seems right. But you know, actually try to um, experience different things uh, for a law student. That means you know, tr not deciding that you want to necessarily unless you're 100 percent sure. And I don't think most people are. You know, trying out different things. That's why law school is such a great place for you know aspiring lawyers. There's there's groups, there's clubs, there's internships. There's so much stuff that that most law schools have in terms of resources. That you know, getting to experience different things, uh, you know, can open new doors. Um, so don't be foreclosed to different possibilities. Uh, you know, be flexible. Um, and you know, sometimes things you know that don't seem perfect at one point work out down the road. So don't always come to conclusions until you actually get to that end of the road. Um, but you know, if you're like me and uh, you don't actually know for certain that this is 100% what you want to do at the end of the day then you know be be flexible and, and be open to opportunities because sometimes those opportunities are going to show you that there's something even better out there well adam i couldn't agree more and that's the pod 
Thank you so much for coming on, Adam. I really do appreciate it. And for everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in and I will see you in the next one.